Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. With me today is my co-host, attorney and Republican strategist, Jay Carson. It's been yet another chaotic week in the Trump administration, which, of course, was highlighted by the firing of White House Communications Director Anthony Scaramucci only 10 days after his appointment was announced and even before his first official day on the job. Wow. Uh, Yeah. Now, one version of events, of course, is that Scaramucci was removed because he accomplished his main mission, which was removing (laughs) former White House chief of staff, you know, Lawrence Priebus, who was replaced by former Marine General and former Homeland Security Secretary John Kelly. So at this point, Donald Trump is on his second chief of staff, his second national security advisor, his second press secretary, and his fourth communications director, once he finds someone to take that big prize of a job, all in less than seven months. So, so Jay, what do you make of these latest personnel changes? And what would you say are the odds that Kelly can right the ship? Oh, I, you know, I have no idea as far as the, the odds, uh, just because, uh, you know, look, I'm, I'm not there. I don't, I don't, uh, know any of these people personally. Uh, I don't know how they'll, how they'll react. I think the, the certainly Kelly coming in and the immediate uh, dismissal of Scaramucci. If you are, uh, well, look, if you're if you're a Republican, you have to be very much heartened by this. Uh, you know, when Trey and I talked last week, there was the, very much the sense that yeah, Scaramucci once now that that he would be in, he was would almost be all a de facto chief of staff. Uh, you know, with with Priebus out. And uh, that that was sort of a a, a victory for the the Trumpians uh, over your more traditional uh, people who who worked in the political process. Uh, but I mean, it was it was pretty short lived. And uh, uh, my sense is that Kelly taking that first big step and and quick step uh, uh, really should send a message. Uh, again, I don't know how well that message gets gets heated. And and my concern with the message getting heated is less from the uh, lower level uh, White House employees and, and more from the president himself. Uh, there, there have been reports, though, that he has already uh, taken some some pretty big steps to change the culture of uh, of the White House White House staff as far as who has access to the president, uh, who has uh, uh, you know just just when when they're showing up for work. I mean, just just that kind of stuff uh, and imposing more discipline. Yeah, apparently even uh, uh, Ivanka and Jared now need to go through Kelly to actually get FaceTime with the president, which is a which is a big change. And, you know, I I think Priebus, I think, was always a bad choice, not necessarily because he's a weak person or anything like that, but because I don't think he ever had the trust of the president, you know. And so you bring in someone like Kelly, pretty clearly Donald Trump likes generals, respects generals to the extent he respects anyone. And so certainly, if, as you said, if you're a conservative, this has to be heartening, suggesting that maybe there's going to be at least a little bit of order out of all of this chaos so far. But of course, the real test is what's going to happen when Kelly tells the president to not do something that the president wants to do for his own good. And we haven't seen what that's going to be like yet, and I'm sure that will come sooner rather than we'll, later. We'll know it when we see it, though. Yeah, absolutely. I really, I really think we will. You'll, you know, there will be the the tweet, and you'll have to say, "Geez, did did Kelly know about this?" Uh, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but uh, but but we'll see. I, I guess in the end, I think that this might make a marginal difference, but I also think that. 
the president is who he is, and he's not, I can't imagine him changing in any fundamental way. Now, maybe I guess the positive way to spin this, if you're a Trump supporter or you believe in some of the stuff that uh, Donald Trump wants to do, is that, well, if he's faced with the very real possibility that his presidency can be an abject, would be an abject failure, maybe he'll be willing to sort of pull back and let his, let his people direct him or rein him in. But I don't know that I buy that exactly. That sounds like more like a rational calculation. And I don't really know that the president, given what we know of his character, is, is capable of, of doing that, even if the stakes are as high as they clearly are here. Yeah. Um, well, and again, you, you had pointed out on some of the Facebook posts, uh, Trump's been playing a lot of golf. And, and again, that may be heartening to a lot of conservatives, <laughs> probably heartening to liberals too. Uh, if, if Trump is of the management mind, and maybe he is, that look, I'm just going to hire the best people. I'm going to get Kelly in there, let him run the White House. Uh, I'm going to go play some golf. Um, that, in, in, in a lot of ways, uh, if you're a conservative, uh, you, you're really pretty happy with that. Uh, that, uh, you know, again, I, I'm not going to comment as, is it sort of anti-democratic a little bit and that, uh, Trump is the guy elected, but, uh, you know, if Kelly's running the show, but, uh, from a competency standpoint, I think most people would be more comfortable with Kelly running the show. Oh yeah, definitely. So we'll, we'll see what happens, but you're right. Eventually there's going to come, uh, at some point, there's going to be some sort of test where we'll, we'll see, uh, you know, who, who's, uh, you know, if Trump's going to follow Kelly's lead. So. All right, you know, before we move on, uh, we'd like to thank our first sponsor today, ZipRecruiter. You know, everyone knows that good help is hard to find. I mean, even the president can't seem to find and keep quality exactly. people. I'm not sure whether he got Kelly off ZipRecruiter, yeah. but he should well, have you, looked there. Exactly, because with ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100 plus job sites with just one click. And then their pow powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. And that's why ZipRecruiter is different, because unlike those other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you, it finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. And, you know, I don't know for sure, but I bet if Donald Trump placed an ad on ZipRecruiter for communications director, ZipRecruiter wouldn't have suggested Anthony Scaramucci. You probably I wouldn't have gotten the mooch. No, not yeah. at all. And with ZipRecruiter, there's no juggling emails or calls to your office. You just screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with their easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, Politics Guys listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Politics Guy. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Politics Guy. Wait. What was that? Yes, you got no, it. Just, just no S, no S. There on you that, go. Right? ZipRecruiter.com slash politics guys to post jobs for politics guy to post jobs for free. Okay, moving on. You know, this week, President Trump signaled support for a Senate Republican proposal to cut legal immigration to the United States by half in the next decade. Now, the plan represents really a sweeping change to U.S. immigration policy, largely by making it much harder for many immigrants who are already legally in the country to sponsor their relatives. Now, instead of this family-based system, which is how most immigrants currently come to the United States, the proposal would be a so-called merit-based system with applicants being favored, not based on whether or not they have family in the United States, but instead on job skills, education, ability to speak English, and other sort of things like that. 
So Jay, what's your first take on this proposal? You know, I'm, I'm, I'll tell you, I've been, again, my initial thought was how does this even make sense? Um, uh, you know, why, why would, uh, if the Trump focus has been on, let's stop illegal immigration, which I think is something most everyone can, can agree on, uh, at least, at least most Republicans. And I would say most conservative, a good, a good bit of a conservative uh, Democrats can agree on, um, why tackle this? Uh, to me, I, I think the, the 50% reduction seems sort of arbitrary and I'm not sure why, why we have that number. Uh, uh the piece of it of, of, uh, trying to make our, our, uh, the, the criteria more skill-based, more merit-based, I'm all for that. Uh, but you know, my sense is, and, and from, from what I've read from the business community, a lot of them feel that, you know, we have the capacity to take on, uh, you know, more than, you know, plenty of, of, uh, of new skilled immigrants. Uh, so I, I don't get the, the, uh, the arbitrary, uh, cutoff unless it's sort of a bargaining thing. Now, the other, the other piece to, I think to this is the, the, uh, common sense sort of the, uh, uh, uh you know, word on the ground is this bill isn't going to go anywhere. Uh, and it's, it's just sort of a, a, uh, uh, you know, a flag to stick in the ground a little bit to say, hey, I'm doing something uh, on, on immigration. Um, but uh, yeah, from a policy standpoint, I'm not crazy about it. Yeah. I mean, I think there are two ways to look at this. I agree from a from a uh, economic policy standpoint and then from a, uh, well, well, another standpoint I'll get to in just a minute. But from the economic standpoint, you know, it seems to be uh, there's a fair amount of consensus among economists that this doesn't necessarily, this kind of thing wouldn't necessarily lead to more jobs. In fact, the more likely outcome is it leads to more automation when businesses don't have access to that low wage labor and they just go ahead and further automate things instead of paying higher wages. And the second point kind of related to this is this argument that, well, these, these, people are taking jobs that Americans would otherwise take. There's really not, uh, there's really not much evidence of that as well. Now, the only sector that tends to be slightly hurt by immigration in this sense are, uh, are Americans without high school education. So there's a slight effect there, but overall the business community isn't in favor of this. It's kind of an economic non-starter. And so I think that comes back then to why would this sort of thing be proposed? And then you have to kind of look to the Steve Bannon influence, the kind of, uh, I, I'm not going to say that Steve Bannon is absolutely alt-right, but certainly Breitbart has, you know, pushed some alt-right type of stuff, that whole kind of thing. Well, this is a cultural argument. We are a, uh, a, a white European nation and these are our values and we bring these other people in and it, it uh, uh, subverts, corrupts, whatever, American values. Now, I obviously don't buy this argument even a little bit, but there are a lot of people who I think believe this sort of thing. And, you know, I think this gets to, you know, this idea of, and it was brought up right at one of the press conferences about what about that, that stuff on the Statue of Liberty about, you know, give us your tired, your poor, your huddled masses. Well, only if they have an MBA or something like that is that there was, but, you know, but this to me, uh, really ties in well with a post that Trey made this week on Facebook. And he was talking about, you have to stay with me here for a minute. He was watching the Andy Griffin show, I guess, showing it to his kids or something like that. And, you know, he's talking about what are those sort of values and that sort of thing. And I, I thought about that, you know, what are those kind of Mayberry obviously never existed in a lot of ways, but what are those values? Well, 
community, family, looking out for each other, that sort of thing. And those, I think, are some of the values that uh, largely animate and drive our immigration policy in this country, because it's based on keeping families together, allowing family members to, you know, uh, get into the United States as groups are bringing other family members, that sort of thing. And I think that's a, I think that is in the best tradition of American values. And this proposal moves to replace that with the, well, you know, no, we're just going to focus more on economic values. And that to me is a real, that, that is a, a change far for the worse. And that's not to say that we shouldn't try to bring in the best and the brightest from around the world and welcome them with open arms. Certainly we should, but we shouldn't do that at the expense of, of families, I think. Well, the other uh, thing that, that troubles me a little bit, I don't know that anyone's really talked about this, but if, if you are going to curb legal immigration uh, by a fairly significant amount, uh, and, and not just amount, but, but quality of people who are able to apply and get in legally, uh, does that create a, a perverse incentive for more illegal immigration, mm, uh, which is which is what we're trying to stop in the first place. Uh, I, you know, I think a lot of times the, the traditional conservative position, the Reagan conservative position, had been that we welcome immigrants uh, for the economic benefit they bring, uh, for the, uh, there's, there's a political benefit, sort of what you just referred to, that uh, of being the the shining city on the hill where people want to go to as seen as the beacon of freedom. And we want that to be communicated throughout the world. Um, so I, I think, you know, that was, there was that, there was that Republican tradition. Again, it's maybe a tradition of 30 years ago, but uh, <clears throat> of, of opening uh, legal immigration. Uh, now, again, that's making sure we're bringing in people who, who uh, aren't criminals, uh, people who are uh, able to support themselves, whether it's just through, you know, particular skills or just just real hard work. Um, but this would seem to to uh, move in a contrary direction to that. And again, I, I just I just don't get it either policy wise or strategy wise. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I think, too, and then that in the best tradition of conservative Republican thought, there is a very strong moral element. And that moral element, I think, is something that we don't see in a whole lot of what President Trump is proposing. And this is just the late, latest example, because I don't necessarily think he's animated by that sort of thing. I think he's just animated by uh, amoral materialism, uh, you know, Wall Street is in Michael Douglas greed is good kind of stuff. And <laughs> and the rest of it is all just a whole bunch of just just BS. But, but again, Wall Street's on the other side of this. So. Yeah, well, yeah, that kind of Wall Street. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, before we move on, we'd like to say Thank you to our second sponsor for today, Blue Apron, the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the United States. Their mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. I said it before, it even works for me. I am a certified crazy, insane mess in the kitchen. And they do it all with super fresh, high quality ingredients. They partner with local farms, fisheries, and ranchers across the country, and they source ingredients to support a sustainable food system. Now, Jay, you get Blue Apron meals. Uh, what do you and your family think? about them i love them uh we love them they are they're delicious they're easy to make uh it is a a neat kind of family inter, uh family uh uh activity that you can introduce your kids to cooking uh and and you save a lot of the, the steps that are more laborious and uh and messy 
So uh, I I think it's it's fantastic, and uh, you know I can't recommend them enough. Yeah, absolutely. And you know they have some great upcoming meals. Listen to this: if black pepper beef with bok choy and garlic rice, uh, barramundi and garlic mashed potatoes with corn and tartar sauce. And let me see if I get my tongue around this one. Uh, Yakuniku glazed eggplant with shishito peppers and ginger lime cashews. It's like an international education and great food. And it's a really great value too, because less than $10 per person per meal, and it's delivered right to your door. Check out this week's menu and you will get your first three meals free with free shipping. Just go to blueapron.com slash TPG. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash TPG. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Okay, moving on. You know, Jay, there was some good news on the economic front this week with the Labor Department reporting that 209,000 jobs were added in July, which was actually above Wall Street estimates. And along with this, we've got a soaring stock market, an unemployment rate of just 4.3%, and that's the lowest it's been since early 2001. But, you know, making America great again. You know, you know, but of course, when, (laughs) when President Trump took to Twitter, of course, to claim credit for all this, he somehow forgot to mention that job growth over his first six months in office is actually slightly less than it was for President Obama's final six months. And he also didn't have anything to say about continued anemic wage growth. And finally, I want to point out, it's interesting to me uh, how those Labor Department figures that Donald Trump is, you know, trumpeting now, those are the same, that's from the same Labor Department If he said put out phony figures less than a year ago. So I don't know, I guess for some reason they're no longer fake news. Um, Jay, well, what do you think about all this? Look, I, I think it's good It's good news uh, regardless who takes the credit for it. Um, yeah, I, you know, my, my point, a lot of this stuff, particularly the stock market, um, uh, surge, the post-Trump surge, has been not from anything that uh, Trump has particularly done uh, policy-wise or promised to do policy-wise, uh, but ju- just simply sort of you the stuff that he's not going to do or you don't expect him to do. Uh, uh, so there's there's sort of that uncertainty has been taken out of uh, the market from a regulatory uh, sense. So I think that's that's helped. Um, I'm still not sure because I, I have not seen what the you know what the labor participation rate has done. Um, that's 62.9% always for me. Anytime you're talking about yeah. the unemployment rate, uh, whether it's, whether it's president Obama or president Trump, um, you know, if the unemployment rates grow going down great, but if that uh, labor participation rate isn't going down, uh, or is getting bigger, uh, that's, that doesn't necessarily indicate a, a great amount of health. Now, when, when you're down to the numbers we are, I think you can, you can say, yeah, that's, that's still pretty healthy. But, um, if there's still folks on the sidelines, uh, that's, that's not good. Yeah. And you know, for the last four or five years, it's actually been pretty stable right between, uh, like 62.9 and 63.1 or 63.2, right in through that range. So pretty stable, really fun since, uh, since around, uh, 2012 on. So, and right now it's 62.9 and it's been pretty much right around there for all of 2017. And, it's been right around the same for, like I said, for, for the last four or five years. So that, that's, that's been a yeah, statement. So not, not a huge number of people coming back into the, the, the labor force now. And again, some of that may be disability, maybe retirement, but regardless. Yeah. Uh, 
And to give um, you a sense, uh, in 2001, 2002, that rate was around uh, low 67, like 67.1, 67.2, that kind of thing. So it is definitely uh, declined. But part of that, like you said, you know, we have that uh, baby boomer demographic and so forth. But uh, but yeah, that's good that you pointed out. I certainly would would have if you hadn't. So, you know, and I think a larger point, though, and one that we don't maybe that at least the mainstream media doesn't emphasize enough is that when we talk about the Obama labor market or under Trump or something, it makes it sound like the president is controlling these massive levers that all of a sudden create jobs. And especially I would think Jay, for you as a conservative, that's like anathema. Government doesn't create jobs. I mean, the market- no, exactly. No. Uh, and that's when that's consistent with what I said earlier. I think to the extent that we've had the stock market surge, it's not that uh, Trump has done anything. It's just simply it's uh, the, uh, <laughs> the, the the malaise, the fever, the the uh, uh, we finally shed the virus uh, of uh, overregulation that had. I think dogged the economy for a while. Well, you know, uh, yeah. So yeah, no, I, I'm I'm completely of that that presidents or governments on their own don't simply create jobs. Uh, what they do is uh, manage an environment in which the private sector can can create yeah. jobs. So you know, and I will I will say that a lot of businesses have said that the rollback of many regulations that uh, Donald Trump has been able to do because he doesn't need Congress to do that for the most part has had. Uh, a positive effect on business confidence. Uh, initially, there was some thinking that he might actually be able to push through infrastructure and, and tax reform, and that is, seems a little less likely now. But but also, you know, you have to take a look at this in terms of the overall trends, and the overall trend is pretty much consistent from well before President Obama, sorry, President Trump came into office. And so, again, presidents get way too much credit for when the economy is going well, way too much blame. And so does the Trump deregulation thing make a difference? Uh, I would say if it does, it's going to be really at the margins, at least to this point. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I give, I'd hire, I'd give it a, a bigger, uh, bigger piece of the pie, but going more to the uh, stock market part of it than to the uh, the employment part. Yeah. And of course, you know, that's another point is that there's the stock market, then there's the real economy. And those are two very different things. Uh, for for most Americans, that there's a very tenuous connection, if any at all. And so that's great if you're in the 1% or in the top 10% even. But if you're just a normal, regular, you know, working Joe or Jane, eh, you know, that's, uh, you're looking more at those wage growth numbers, which are pretty crummy, actually. All right, you know, uh, Congress and the president are taking a break for the next few months. I'm guessing the Republican leadership is just exhausted from all that winning. Uh, I'm tired. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, before they left town, the Senate managed to confirm dozens of Trump nominees. And this was due to largely to Senate Democrats who agreed to stop their slowdown of the process, which was in protest of being shut out of any role in health care overhaul. But. You know, putting aside this confirmation bonanza, we're starting to see signs, I think, that the Senate, at least, is beginning to, if not ignore the president, at least to operate sort of as a co-equal branch of government, which, of course, is kind of what the framers intended. Um, And one example of this was their move to hold pro forma sessions over the break so that President Trump can't take advantage of an adjournment to potentially fire Attorney General Jeff Sessions and make a recess appointment to replace him with someone more... um, 
let's say, malleable without needing Senate confirmation, right? Um, and, and I would say another sign of- There was a time you were worried about Jeff Sessions being in the bag for uh, Trump. But, well, uh, he's, go ahead. No, I mean, yeah, and clearly he's not in the bag for Trump, although clear, just as clearly he's pushing a lot of policies that I think are just absolutely dreadful. But, you know, another sign, I think, and maybe this is even more important, of greater Senate independence is that announcement this week by Senator Lamar Alexander uh, of Tennessee, he's a Republican. He's chair of the Senate's Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee. And he announced that his committee would begin work on legislation that is intended to stabilize Obamacare markets. And this is, this is also joined by in the House, there's a bipartisan group of, I think it's 35 at last count, that calls itself the Problem Solvers Caucus. They also announced an agreement on a series of measures intended to stabilize Obamacare markets. So what do you think, Jay? Is this, is at least, I mean, is at least- well, I mean, this, is the Senate doing something? I, I yeah. think if they're stepping into the vacuum uh, that, that has been left, I think that, that's a good thing. Um, continuing to talk, uh, uh, doing the preventing uh, recess appointments, which again, you, you is sort of unusual when your party controls the, uh, would control those appointments. Um, I think that's all, all well and good. And, and I think maybe the Senate is realizing, the legislature in general, uh, that it's going to have to, you know, sort of go, go it alone, uh, you know, absent, absent some big changes. Um, uh, from the administration. Uh, I, I'm less, I'm less sanguine about the, you know, policy steps they're taking, although I understand why they're taking them. I mean, when you say stabilize the insurance markets, uh, what that essentially is, is a, an infusion of cash, uh, uh more subsidies, uh, in order to, to keep propping up Obamacare. Now that said, I mean, that's, that's that's uh, maybe be necessary to keep the thing from collapsing until the uh, something new is is uh, created, um, but th- there's also the risk that you know we end up with sort of this permanent uh, state if we keep coming in and keep stabilizing and stabilizing and and uh, uh, that's sort of the new entitlement, uh, not so much even for Americans, but it's entitlement for insurance companies, uh, which is is problematic. Yeah. And, and let's be, let's be just to be clear about this and to give people a little more context that these subsidies that we're talking about were actually part of the law that uh, Congress passed were part of the Affordable Care Act. And the issue is that while that these subsidies that actually help insurance companies insure the, the, the sickest who have, you know, incur the highest costs, while these were part of the law, that money was never actually separately appropriated. And so what the Obama administration did is they went ahead and uh, went ahead and spent that money or pushed out that money to the insurance companies anyway. Uh, House Republicans brought suit against that, and that's still pending whether or not that these appropriations or sorry, this funding is actually uh, something that the president, that the executive branch can do. But while that has been pending, the first the Obama administration and then the Trump administration has continued to keep this up because basically with, without this, you know, the, the insurance companies base their rates and base their planning on this law being, you know, being uh, enacted as it was passed. And now there's this uncertainty about this, especially because the Obama administration said, well, we're just going to do this. Whereas the Trump administration has made it kind of a month to month sort of thing saying, well, we'll do it this month, but we'll see about next month. And of course there's, there's no, 
there's no policy reason to do that. Either you are in favor of doing this or you aren't. And doing it from month to month to month creates the sort of uncertainty and instability that just is, is anathema to insurers. And so naturally that's going to cause them to jack up their rates because they have to account for worst case scenarios. Sure. And I, I look, I would, uh, I would agree the, if Congress were to do an appropriation, a limited appropriation, uh, for this, that might be a good step say, you know, okay, it's, uh, here, here's the subsidies they're approved for the next year. Uh, that, that puts the, uh, uh, some, some confidence in the markets of, okay, well, at least we know where we are for the next year. It also puts a timeline on here's what we need to get done before we are in this problem again. Um, so I, I could be okay with that, but uh, you know, again, it's it's sort of a a, a weird uh, legal situation in which the uh, the trial court has essentially said they think that the uh, the way this is being done right now is probably unconstitutional. Uh, but uh, the parties had agreed to a stay of any enforcement of that order uh, pending, you know, hoping to get get uh, a new health care bill done. So that that is still hanging out there. But, uh, I, you know, I, I think it's it's well and good the Senate's taking some action to stabilize it. My concern is creating another long-term entitlement if we don't get a more uh, uh, a more permanent solution. Yeah. And, you know, I think this is the, this is the way that the process should have started in the first place with Senate and House committees having hearings. Uh, getting input from both sides. And sure, maybe at some point, you know, you say, well, the Democrats aren't going to go along with anything. They're being intransigent in their demands and so forth, if you're the Republicans, obviously. But at least you start with the regular order, the, the sort of thing that Mitch McConnell promised he would do and then just said, well, the hell with that, uh, essentially, when it when push came to shove. And, and you know, even even if you hate Obamacare, and a lot of people do, at least the Obamacare process started that way. It did, wasn't this Democrats only thing in secret. And sure, that was after a point when they said, well, just Republicans aren't going to go along with any of this. They went their own way. But you start that way. And if for no other reason, you can say, hey, we made we made an effort to bring the other side in. And, and you know, clearly Republicans didn't do this. And I think it was at least if it wasn't an opportunity to craft some sort of bipartisan legislation that the president would sign, at least it was a way of showing that, hey, we're not going to be my way or the highway. The, the optics of it, as they say, would be a lot better, you know, and it's just it's, it's just a sad state where we don't even pretend to try bipartisanship in any of this stuff, you know. So, all right. Um, moving on, it is time for what we're reading, where we step back from the crazy pace in the news cycle and talk about the more in-depth, thoughtful things we're reading, listening to, or watching. Uh, Jay, you mind if I start off this week? Absolutely. Go ahead. All right. Well, I am recommending this week a podcast called Global Dispatches, and this is a great show. It focuses on foreign policy and international affairs. I know a lot of listeners are really interested in that. We focus more obviously on on domestic stuff. So if you're if you're desiring a fix for the more foreign affairs stuff, this is this is a great show. Um, not too long ago, I talked briefly with the host uh, Mark Goldberg uh, about his show, and here's what he had to say about his podcast. If you could just tell listeners a little bit about what you, uh, how long you've been doing the show and, you know, uh, what you try to do with it and that sort of thing, I think that would be great. Uh, sure. So Global Dispatches is a couple of years old now. And what we try to do is introduce listeners to the personalities behind the big ideas, events, and influences uh, that uh, that shape 
how we understand the world. So we do long profile interviews with personalities in foreign policy, people that your audience may know, sometimes people that your audience might know, you know, high profile journalists like Fareed Zakaria or high profile academics like Joseph Nye have been on the show to discuss uh, the big events and ideas and influences that shaped their worldview from an early age and propelled their careers in foreign policy. And we often have digressions about historic foreign policy events in which their life or career intersected in some meaningful way. Yeah, you know, I just recently saw you recently posted an interview with Graham Allison, and I'm really looking forward to that. I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet. But uh, for, mm -hmm. for those of you who are into uh, international relations, he is a very big deal. And I'm sure that's going to be an excellent uh, an excellent interview. Really looking well, forward it, to it. Well, it, it was fun. It's a pretty good distillation of, of what I do. I didn't have as much time with him as that I would have liked, but we spent a good deal of time talking about his most recent book. But perhaps more interestingly for, for me, we talked about his first book and the intellectual origins of his seminal study of the Cuban Missile Crisis, right. which if your listeners are into or have ever taken an International Relations 101 course, they've, they've probably read. It's called Essence of Decision, and it presented some groundbreaking uh, new analytics lenses, new ways in which uh, we understand how foreign policy operates through his groundbreaking study of uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. And he kind of tells me not the details of the the his results of his famous work, but really the ideas behind it and how he got interested in that topic and some key moments during the research of the book, including a conversation he told me he had with Bobby Kennedy, in which it was a look in the eye of Bobby Kennedy that uh, led Graham Allison to one of his key insights in Essence of Decision. So it was pretty interesting, kind of fun, stories I'd never heard. Yeah, no kidding. Oh, I'm, re I'm really looking forward to, to checking that out. And, and and again, I would encourage listeners, to, if you just look back through the past episodes, there is so much there, a, a lot of really amazing stuff. And and I think you will, uh, you'll, you'll really love it. And, and Mark, I, I really appreciate you yeah. uh, taking the time to, to tell us a little bit about your show. Thank you. Yeah, and I should also say we also do shorter episodes every week uh, that shine a spotlight on topical global issues that are oftentimes off the radar of, of mainstream media. So we'll, we'll kind of explain the latest crisis in Africa or how the peace was secured in, in Colombia or shone a spotlight, spotlight on like the latest fig global population figures coming out of the UN. So it's a it's a, a varied kind of foreign policy experience I think your listeners will get. Yeah, that kind of stuff that you don't necessarily get when everyone's talking about President Trump's latest tweet yeah. or something like that. So very that's valuable. Yeah, that's that's very valuable stuff and the kind of thing that we're really into. So again, thanks so much for taking the time. And and listeners definitely this is a show you should put on on your podcast list for sure. Well, thank you. Okay, Jay, so what's your recommendation for this week? My recommendation uh, comes from Thursday's Wall Street Journal, um, an article regarding mobility from uh, rural areas uh, to uh, to the cities and discussing, you know, there was there was a there was an, a piece in National Review a year or so ago by uh, Kevin Williamson that was really sort of controversial for those who follow this and and the gist was, look if you're in one of these places where uh, the the economy is tanked you're in one of these dead towns I mean then get up and move go somewhere else uh, and many many saw that as sort of heartless um, and this takes a look at again the broader trend uh, indicating that there is less mobility now than there used to be. And looking at some of the reasons for that, and I think it's it's really it's it's um, it's sort of a sad kind of piece, uh, <laughs> in, in that you it's it's 
you know, this, this Mayberry sort of the, and again, it ties in with that, that, you know, to the extent places like that existed, uh, they're, they're not existing anymore, or it's, it's just a, uh, holdouts, uh, there, but, you know, it cites all these other, um, uh, reasons why people don't move. I mean, and it's it's family support, it's it's church support, it's just familiarity, and it's cultural shifts. If some people don't want to uh, live in the same world that that uh, uh, of the big city, uh, some people want to be in Mayberry, and and maybe you can't anymore. Um, but uh, we'll post that uh, on uh, on the the website, and then the uh, I think that that one's uh, public, not behind a paywall. So. Um, but uh, again, it's just one of those those pieces that uh, you start to wonder if there is, you know, mobility that everybody just moves. Do we reach a point where no one's going to move anymore? Uh, and maybe that's just just where we are. So, you know, and I think that brings up something I've been thinking about a lot. And there was Trey's post and, and, and the article that you mentioned is that that whole aspect of of public policy and politics that I feel really gets devalued. And that's the cultural uh, component of it, you know, and, and yeah. you well, it's, it's one of those things is it's, it, you can't really measure it empirically is the problem. Exactly. And, you know, I feel like there are so many of our, uh, of our institutions, uh, whether it's uh, religious groups or other things that, that used to be so important. Uh, and now so many of these institutions, these cultural institutions just seem to be uh, lagging, seem to be uh, not so much in disrepute, but our focus tends to be so much more on how can I get more and make more and get more and make more. And and I think for a lot of people that just feels uh, in a way kind of, you know, I don't want to get all, you know, communistic or anything on here or anything, but, but you know what I'm saying? Certainly I think, right. That, that there's a lot more to life than that. And yet so much of our policy, so much of our politics discussion focuses squarely on getting more and making more. And a lot of that good stuff I think gets left behind and that that's really tragic. Well, you know, I would say there's, there was a, a book years ago back in the um, late 80s, I, I believe, called uh, Bowling Alone, uh, which which talked about sort of that, those civic institutions that, um, uh, you know, were, were looked upon um, by Alexis de Tocqueville as sort of a, a, a fundamental part of, of America, the, the, you know, the bowling league, the Rotary Club, the church, the garden club, the, the Boy Scouts, the whatever else these, these uh, you know, non-government civic organizations that allowed for, for communities to, to kind of pull together and, and you met new people doing that at, at those things and uh, created this sense of community that, that I don't think exists uh, as much anymore. I don't want to say it, it's gone and I think it varies from place to place. Uh, but, but yeah, with uh, Trey's piece on uh, Mayberry, I think that's one of the things that we're, we're sort of missing is this, that those community attachments uh, are, are becoming uh, more and more tenuous, I think, in a lot of places. Yeah. And I think that's something that uh, liberals and conservatives can agree on, you know? Yeah. All right. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We hope you like what you heard and that you'll check out today's sponsors, ZipRecruiter First, where Politics Guys listeners can post jobs for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash PoliticsGuy and Blue Apron. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to BlueApron.com slash TPG. You know, listener support is a huge help to us and greatly appreciated. If you're interested in joining our, our awesome group of Politics Guys supporters, you can go to PoliticsGuys.com and click on the 
the Patreon link. And if you want to support the show without spending anything, you can share this episode with your friends and followers or pass along our new show posts and tweets on Facebook and Twitter. Also, leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes also is a help. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just a random thought you want to share, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page where you can message us and where we post throughout the week is facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. The show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.